Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Thanks for tuning in. You know, for the past several weeks, we've been going back over some of my favorite episodes from the past. And today I want to bring you a very special one because in a lot of ways, it's the first official off-camera episode. Now, technically it's episode number two, but episode number one was with my friend Val McCallum and it was a test episode to see if this idea even worked. And we were so happy with it that it became our first episode. But when we decided to actually do this and make it a real thing, I called my friend John Krasinski, who I'd known for a long time, and I said, come in, do this weird podcast television show thing with me, and we'll try it out and see if it works. And John, without knowing anything about it, and without it having any distribution, he agreed to come in and open up to me. And coincidentally, this was right at the time that The Office was ending. So he was in a really interesting place. He'd had a steady gig for a lot of years, but when he got The Office, he was an unknown. And then when The Office ended, he was a major celebrity, but he had no idea what he was gonna do next. Now he had done a couple movies and he was also directing his own film, but I think he was really at a crossroads and it was really interesting to talk to him at this juncture in his life. Not only to hear stories about the behind the scenes that went on at the office, but also to hear him assess his own career. He also talks about what he was doing just prior to getting the office and how he had almost given up on his career several times. And it's a fascinating story. You know, cut to the present and John has become not only a big action star hero that can open movies and a completely recognizable face and one half of a very beloved couple with his wife Emily Blunt and a father, but he's also become a director and he made this incredible film, A Quiet Place, and now he's made the sequel. So John Krasinski's trajectory has been quite amazing. And I thought it'd be a special treat to go back and listen to not only the beginning of this show, but sort of the beginning of his next chapter. So here's the show. Enjoy John Krasinski. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones. In this episode, I sit down with John Krasinski, as Jim Halpert, John Krasinski embodies The Office's most beloved every guy, but his middle achiever alter ego belies the actor's impressive and accomplished resume. At just 33, he has written, directed, and produced both television and feature films with some of the industry's most talented heavy hitters. On this edition of Off Camera, Krasinski shares his own version of the waiter to A-list story and talks about staying true to his artistic path despite periods of self-doubt. An avid and humble student of experience, he discusses what he's learned from his work with industry veterans such as Sam Mendes, Gus Van Zandt, and George Clooney. Krasinski talks to Off Camera about wrapping the final season of The Office, the value of supportive parents, and about his film, Promised Land, which he co-wrote and co-stars with Matt Damon. At one of the most interesting junctions in his career, an actor who's arguably done it all looks ahead to what he hopes will be next. So pull up a chair and listen in. John Krasinski. Sam Jones. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Um, the stu- studio is enormous. I can't believe they shot Jurassic Park here. Uh, isn't it amazing? It's pretty I amazing. I know. Well, the rent is tough, but uh, shows like this help us. I don't know why you chose this place to do this. I feel like you could have chosen a smaller venue. Well, you know, it was you. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, you know, I've known you a long time, mm-hmm. and um, uh, there's a lot I do know about you, but there's a lot I don't. And I've also watched your career just kind of take off in the last few years and watched how much you've taken on and how much you've grown as an, as an artist and as a craftsman. And um, That's nice. Yeah, and I, I just want to know a little bit more about that. But in all the kind of time we've spent together, I've never really asked you about kind of um, like how you got started because... You know, you're, I know your brothers and your dad, and they're all big athletic dudes, and you're 6'3 and athletic. And, and puny. Yeah, yeah. You're 5'7, but, um, but you know, how did you, how did you uh, like, when was your first moment on stage? My first moment on stage was uh, sixth grade. I played Daddy Warbucks. It was a very progressive performance. I had a full head of hair. And um, <clears throat> I really loved it. I remember really loving it. I remember we had to like write in our journals in sixth grade every week, and I wrote about how much I loved acting, and it was really, really fun. But never anything that I wanted to do, and I just never thought about it again. <clears throat> and then senior year in high school, weirdly, I was going to do a spring sport because I played sports every season, and there was just I was going to run track again, even though I didn't really like track. <laughs> and B.J. Novak, weirdly, from The Office, uh, went to my high school, came up to me and said, I really want you to be in this senior show, which was like a giant parody of all the teachers in the school and everything. And it had been gone for four years. It had been banned by the school. And this was the first year it was back and he was put in charge of it. And he was like, I really want you to do it. And I said, why would, why would I ever, why would you ever think I could do this? And he's like, I don't know. I just think you'd be really right for it. And you're funny and let's do it. And I got on stage and it was really, really fun. That, so to me, that was sort of that moment where I was with my friends. We were doing something silly. People were watching. It was really, really Exciting, and then there was a small, tiny window where I thought I was going to play basketball in college, and uh, and I got to I got into Brown uh, as a mid-year, so the season had already started. So in January, I went to the gym to see the coach and the team, and literally just walked in the door, saw them practicing, and just was like, nope, too big, too good, I'm out. Really? Yeah, for sure. And as I was walking across campus, there was a there was a uh, flyer on a billboard that just said sketch comedy tryouts and there was this uh, this group called Out of Bounds and I had kind of known that they were like a big deal on campus and I was like ah we'll just do this because I was just looking for something to do and looking for a group of people and uh, I got in and it changed everything not only changed everything because of acting or whatever because again all through college this sounds so bad and sort of defeatist but I never wanted to be an actor I never thought I could be an actor so I just did it for fun because of the group of people because of the community and I did a couple plays where I was like spear holder number 84 in the back and uh, victim number six and like Die Hard the Musical, which they did at Brown, which was actually phenomenal. And, uh, you know, things like that I just did for fun. So leaving school, I didn't think I was ever going to do it. And then I had to make up that semester uh, that I had, you know, I'd come in mid-year. So I had to leave mid-year and I had already walked and graduated. So I didn't want to be at the school without my friends. And so I got into this theater school that would transfer the credits back and was like, there we go. There's an easy sell. And it turned out to be one of the most life-changing events of my, of my life as far as um, just an amazing, totally immersed experience with incredible people, incredible positivity, and a very honest version of the business about how hard it was and, and what, it, what, what you would need to do to actually give it a shot. Was there a moment like... When you walked no, in. No, that's the, it. I thought it was one question. Yeah, that's it. We're done. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Exactly. Was there a moment like when you went on the basketball court and looked and said, nope, that's not me? Was mm-hmm. there ever a, a moment that you remember in acting where you said, 
I can do this. Yeah, I mean, I can do this in a much smaller way. I think the moment that you say, I can do this for real, it's, it's the day that it's all over for you. That's my weird out there theory, that the moment you're like, I deserve this, I'm good enough to do this role, then you're dead, I think. That's my theory, could be totally wrong. But as far as like tastes, it's like kind of like fishing. Like when you get a nibble, you're like, oh my God, there's something down there, this could be really cool. It's always terrifying, this business. I think it's just the, a weird, non-supportive as far as like existentially. Like it's never gonna give you the support of like next 10 years, you're good. So just sit back and enjoy your life. You know what I mean? It's always really scary. Um, but yeah, I remember doing a, a NASCAR commercial for AT&T and I was down in, um, God, was I, in, I think I was in North Carolina and Matt Kenseth was the guy who was in the commercial. And I was just supposed to be this super fan who had won this package through the AT&T you know, cable package. And so I was just a huge fan and I thought we were friends because I won this thing. And his whole thing was he didn't want to speak. He was like, I'll do this commercial, but I don't want to speak. And by the end of just improving, like once they saw that I was just not really going to do any of the lines over and over, they were just like, well, we'll just do whatever you want. So I was like hanging on fences and shaking it as the car went by and doing all this crazy, weird, bizarre, probably ridiculous stuff. And by the end, Matt was like, can I, uh, can I get in this scene with John? And they were like, yes, that would be great. And so we just started improving, and he was the sweetest, nicest guy. And that was just one of those little moments where I was like, oh, that's cool. Again, not because I'm an, I can act and this is fun. It was like something happened, you know what I mean? I changed that guy's directive. He didn't want to be in it, now he was being in it. So I think it was more about like, I had attained this moment where we were having fun and he didn't think we would have fun. So that was one of those little moments where I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. There's an energy here that you can control. Was there a point where your folks were uh, kind of wondering where this was all going or did, were they very supportive of anything you tried? Um, they were abnormally supportive right from the beginning in a way that I think, um, if I had to break it down, I think they trusted me that they, uh, I'm extremely close with my parents and they're just the most awesome people and I think it was just one of those things where it was the day I was being picked up from that theater school. We had driven down the road 20 minutes and you know they had seen our final show, which was totally weird and it was like based on dreams and you know what I mean? Like it wasn't necessarily something that you thought that your son that played basketball and cross country and then went to school, like a, a good school, then all of a sudden was dressed in black doing like stuff with masks and all this weird stuff. It's not necessarily where you're like, and that's where my tuition money goes. So they were extremely supportive and thought that it was really cool and they were totally with these moments, which was awesome. And then we were driving down the road and 20 minutes in, I just said, I just want to let you know I'm moving to New York and I'm going to try this. And I think my mom hesitated for like 1.6 seconds and she said, fine, the only thing I'm going to ask you is that after two and a half or three years, if you don't have a bite, like if there's not one thing out there that was like, I think we got something going, you got to pull the cord yourself because as a mother, I could never... Uh, live with the fact that I pulled the cord on my own kids' dreams. So I, I can't do that. So just don't put me in that position and go for it. And I just thought that was the greatest advice, which was very honest. It was very straightforward. It was extremely supportive. She just didn't want me to be disillusioned as to what this could be. Do you know what I mean? I, I think she just didn't want me to be 50 being like, I still have a shot. And she's like, you don't. It's over. Um, which well, I still could be. Remember that advice, though. God, as a parent, what a great thing to say. Because what she basically said is, you know, I know that you'll know the right moment to get out. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. then that puts it in your mind like, okay, well, I better recognize that moment if it comes. Or well, it was, it's such an amazing comment because it, 
it addresses the fears that she has in a very honest way in that my big fear will be that you lose control of what's right and what's wrong and where you're at and status. You know what I mean? I just don't want this, any business to engulf your kid. You know what I mean? And that's what I thought was so amazing about how concise she was is just like, go for your dreams. Everything that I should be saying as a parent, go for it. Right. And if it doesn't happen, pull the cord. Now, was there, uh, uh, were there any dark days in there in that, two or three year span of uh, where you, like, did it just happen for you? Or, or were there some times where you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, I was an intern for Conan uh, in college, my junior year. So when I was in New York, you know, New York's one of these places that is by far my favorite place on earth. But at the same time, it is your biggest friend and your biggest enemy at the same time. And it's all about your state of mind. You know what I mean? You can wake up in New York and the world's at your feet. And you can also wake up in New York and feel like the world is on top of you. It's, the, it's a really weird parallel that goes on there. So there were a lot of weird days. You know what I mean? It's like some of your, some of your depressed, bummer days, you'd probably rather be in a small town, you know, drinking a soda at a convenience store rather than be walking through Broadway where you can just see the pulse of these people who are like, I have a life, do you? And I'm like, I don't. I don't have a life. So it was, you know, it was very intimidating a lot of the time I got, by the way, it is, you know, admittedly one of the shortest periods to be wor a working actor and working for it. You know, I think I was only um, there two and a half years or three years before I got the office, which was right on my mom's schedule, which is totally weird. But um, I did a couple commercials and things like that. So there were, there were these, you know, lofts and valleys and it was all really fun. But then at one point I made the big decision and I was like, I'm going to look for an agent. And I was like, I've done a bunch of commercials. I'm feeling good. You know, like you said, it was th there was that thing of like, I think maybe something could happen. Um, and I went to a whole bunch of agencies, if not all of them. And they all were like, nope, we're good. They saw my tape and just immediately know if they even wrote back or whatever. So then I flew out to L.A. on my own money, which I had hardly any because I was just a waiter. And, uh, and I did the same thing. Everybody said no. And then my uh, pseudo uncle, and I say pseudo because it's my, it's my dad's wife's sister's husband so it's like my aunt's sister married this guy who's John Carroll Lynch who's one of my favorite actors of all time he's done everything from Zodiac to you know you know Gran Torino to all sorts of different stuff played Drew Carey's brother on the Drew Carey show and um, all these amazing parts and he I was I, I remember calling my mom and saying um, I'm gonna come home I, I'm, I'm done this is really upsetting I'm just gonna come home and she said well you can't because you already said you'd go to John and Brenda's Christmas party and that's family. Like you don't say no to a family party. And I was like, mom, I'm just, I'm really stressed out. I think I'm having a low anxiety. I got to get out of here. She was like, tough. It's family. Go to their, you know, go to the party. It's only, don't be rude. So I go to the party. I give him my tape and he was like, yeah, I heard that, you know, how you have a tape of commercials. Popped in the tape, loved it and said, why don't you call my manager when you get back to New York? Called my man, his manager when he got back to New York. Manager said, I won't represent you, but I'll give you five meetings to see what the town thinks of you. And on my fifth meeting, I booked a pilot, and that was it. And it was, it was, it was not the office. It was this pilot just before the office. And when it failed, I remember being like, well, that's it. Like, you only get one shot. That's it. I'm dead. This is, it's over. And um, right after that pilot, I called my mom. I think it was like just around November, beginning of November. And I said, uh, I think that's it. I'm done. You, you told me to pull it, and I'm going to pull it. This is it. This is me calling you. And she said, well, you know, I just feel like you should ride out the year. Just ride out the end of the year. Like, you're, you're okay, you'll be fine, ride out the year. And three weeks later, I got the office. 
I got the call for the office and then, you know, went and did the audition. So technically, I think I owe my mom 10 percent because she she convinced me not to quit, which was amazing that the same woman who was like, pull the cord was like, don't pull the cord later because she just felt really good about something. And it was it was awesome. That is all you can ask for out of a parent. I mean, when you're ready to give it up and she says, give it a little longer. Yeah. How fantastic. It was awesome. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, Helix Sleep came on board quite a while ago on our show, and to start our relationship out, they asked me to take their sleep quiz. Now, Helix Sleep is a unique company because they match a mattress to you and your sleep habits and your body type and all that stuff. So they had me take their quiz, and it took just two minutes to complete. And they matched my body type and sleep preferences to what was supposed to be the perfect mattress for me. So I took the test thinking I've always been a firm mattress guy. Like I have some back issues and I always thought that I slept better on a firm mattress. But after I took their quiz, they recommended a medium mattress. And I was like, okay, I'll play along. And the mattress came, put it on my bed, and I had great sleep on it the first night. And then the second night... And then the third night, and now it's been over a year, maybe two years, and I sleep better, I sleep cooler, I'm more comfortable, and I have fewer back issues. So, lo and behold, Helix Sleep, through their two-minute quiz, figured out what kind of sleeper I was. And it's been a revolutionary thing, because obviously when you sleep better, you can be more creative, you can get more stuff done, you can feel better about yourself, and I just love this company. So I am glad they're a sponsor, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them in hopes that you will try the whole thing, the quiz, the experience, and you'll have the same experience I did. You know, whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, you like a plush bed or a firm bed, with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising on an average mattress. Helix was even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So just go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, and like I said, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm betting you will. So take a good hard look at your mattress on your bed right now, and ask yourself, can I sleep better? Can I use a better mattress? And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, try Helix Sleep Out. And for our listeners, they're offering up to $200 off at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress offer. Now back to the show. I want to talk about the fact that in this short period of time, mm-hmm relatively short. You've acted, you've directed, you've written, you've produced, um, and you've done it on the highest level. And I wonder um, that, I wonder, you know, you've, you've directed some episodes of The Office, you've directed your own film. I wonder if having that experience directing made you look at acting differently or made you act differently when you came back on the front of the camera. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I mean, my directing a movie... I think I directed the movie before I directed the show. I did, I think. So <clears throat> I had used, when I got the pilot of The Office, I used the entire paycheck to buy the rights to a David Foster Wallace book, of which I think that his agent, who is so sweet, um, Bonnie Nadell, she, I think at the time, was like, why would I give it to it? At that time, I think I was 22. 
or just about to turn 23, yeah. And she was like, why would I give the rights to a 23-year-old kid? And I remember saying to her, I know what you think. You think I'm going to do car chases and sex scenes and just like totally manipulate this beautiful work. But the truth is, the only reason why I want to do it is to have more people hear his voice and understand how powerful his observational skills are and his perspective on the world. And that's it. That's all I want to do. I just want to put these words in actors' mouths, and I promise I can do a good job. And this was brief interviews with hideous with brief, men. Yeah, brief interviews with hideous men. And uh, I remember walking to the elevator thinking I had blown it. And she said, uh, and then she comes out of her office and she was like, you know what? My answer is not no. I'm just going to make you jump through some hoops. And we did. I jumped through a couple of hoops that were just, you know, business nonsense. And she took a chance on me and I, I made the movie. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never directed anything nor knew what to expect or what to do. But I had the most incredible crew around me. I had John Bailey, the DP, shooting uh, the movie. I had the most awesome crew and all these people that were supporting me. And I just did it out of sheer terror and fear and was just shot out of a cannon and just made as quick a decision as I could, which later John Bailey was like, that's the best directing. You know what I mean? Just be present, take every decision as it comes. He's like, weirdly, you did the best directing job as far as, not, not with the film, but like the best course of action to direct is to just stay present and not make so many decisions all the way down the line that there's got to be a little bit of tangible tension and, and fear. And so I had plenty of that. And so I just felt like no one else was going to do it. I don't think anybody really registered with the script and no one else was going to direct it. So I gave it a shot. So to me, it was the most awesome experience because you got to see, you know, as an actor, you get to see everything. You see the grips, you see the lights, you see everybody doing everything, but you don't actually know when, why, how, what they're doing, you know what I mean? And so to set up shop, or to set up shots is just to see what exactly they're doing and why from shadowing to shading to sound to, you know, uh, set decoration and why they chose what they did. It's just so beautiful and you actually, you know, not to be so pretentious, but you de then that's when you realize how much of an art form film is. That is, it is this collective huge group of people doing a painting that is so detailed and so wonderful and you just happen to be the guy who gets to hang it on the wall you know then coming back on the other side of the camera is it i mean obviously i'm sure there's a, a renewed respect for that or or a deeper understanding but did it did it affect your acting or your um your interaction with the director after being on both sides? Yeah, 100%. I think it makes you engage. I think it makes you more of a participant. I think it makes you realize that, uh, you know, in my opinion, <clears throat> uh, most, especially film, is a director's medium, in my opinion. So it's as much as you think, <laughs> you know, you're some really special person that can add so much to the movie, it's, it's the director's vision. And so you have to fit in as a piece into that and just go as fast and as hard down whatever avenue he's, he or she has asked you to go down. And so to me, it felt like, weirdly, when I got cast from then on, it felt like I had been called upon to do something, you know, especially with people like Sam Mendes and George Clooney and, you know, and now Gus Van Sant. It's like you just want to be there for these people and be, you know, again, it's totally pretentious, but like if they chose your color for this painting, like you just want to make sure you're as good as you can be for it. And I think that's what it was, is, is aware of the entire process. And so you just become more of a supporter of what's going on rather than, you know, there are days where you want to arrive on set, have a cup of coffee, and you're like, oh, I'm only in one scene. I'll just... Uh, you know, sort of putter around, get out there, knock it out, and come back. And you have to realize that it's so much more than that. you got to respect it so much more than that.
and conversely, I wonder if um, being an actor, if you think maybe uh, every director should be required to take an acting class so they know. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting theory. I don't know that it'll ever be achieved. I mean, and the other thing is like, really good directors who are completely and totally visual will tell you so. You know what I mean? Like, I think the people will be like, you know, I've heard stories, and I obviously have never worked with him, but I've heard stories that Clint Eastwood, when he hires you, says, like, I hired you for a reason. You do your job, and I'll do mine, and this movie will get done. And that's kind of awesome. You know what I mean? Obviously, he's an actor, and so he knows what he's doing, but I've heard that there's very few notes and very few takes. It's just like, I hired you to be the color in this painting and get there, you know, which I think is pretty, pretty phenomenal. But yeah, for me, directing, being an actor and then directing to me was fully aware of how different and vast everyone's experience is as an actor. That my experience as an actor is completely 100% different than most other people's and, and vice versa. So what I mean is, you know, some of the basic rules that I had been told turned out to be gold and I live by them every single day even when I'm directing the show which is like you don't really make any notes for three takes, no matter what, because a lot of times actors, if, you know, if, they're, if they're doing what you ask them to do, they'll figure out 75% of it. You know what I mean? If, I, if I'm in a scene with you and I talk a little bit too loud, it's like, oh, that's gonna not be great for the next shot. And they, and, you know, and they level it all out. And so to me, that's what's so interesting is allowing people to do their process and then you throw in one or two notes that you know will sort of change the whole direction and, and they're just suggestions, you know? You just respect the actor to not be like, hey, uh, what you need to do in this scene is everything different than what you're doing. You know, very right. rarely do you want right. to get in that situation. Um, and there, and I, being such a fan of, you know, the 70s movies and, and just epic, epic movies, The Verdict is my favorite movie of all time. And you just see how much of that is behavior. You know, how much Sidney Lumet definitely just let Paul Newman sort of figure out stuff, you know what I mean? I doubt that a lot of that was like, and then sit on the bed and as the picture's coming through, say I'm her lawyer. You know, I doubt Sidney Lumet told him to do that. It's like, Paul's gonna understand this moment, maybe I'll give him a suggestion, but the more I just have him feeling like he's in control of this moment and no one's gonna change him, he'll do something really special, you know? It's kind of like, to be really honest, having this interview rather than having an interview for something that I don't know where it's gonna go or who's asking what, like your behavior changes when you're comfortable and sure. so then you're just open and honest. Sure. No, that's true and, and I think that that on the director's side is the anxiety of how can you, if, if you do want to make a change, if you do want to affect a subtle shift in the geography of the scene, how do you do it in a way that maintains that, you know, that you don't, you don't mess with the sensitivity or, or the confidence of an actor, but how do you find that, that one little piece of direction, even if it's Let's go a little slower. Or yeah. let's, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Like, I think there's a, there's a true art to that. And maybe it's one of those things, you either have it or you don't. And maybe Clint Eastwood's so good. Because yeah. But, you know, I remember, I remember George Clooney told me that, you know, so much of it is casting. And you can see it in a movie like A Night and Good Luck. I mean, those people were just, it was like a fraternity. It was like a group of people who just knew how to... Again, super cliche and pretentious, but it is like making jazz. You know what I mean? Those guys were just all vibing on the same thing. And, you know, I don't know if you knew, but like the <clears throat> supposedly the newspaper pitches, when they were pitching what stories of the day, George never told them what pitches to make. That was never in the script. They just were given the newspapers of that day. 
and they had to choose a story and pitch it to the group that day so it would feel alive. So, you know, I think that those things are so huge and you really can feel them. I think if you're, if you're that dedicated to casting, then it's like Clint Eastwood said, there's not much maneuvering you should be doing if you did your homework and got the right person. Right. So I think where insecurities and fears and nerves come into play is when you start saying, like, I need the scene to be this way. That's when people start to get nervous because I think what people get nervous about is if this is so rigid, then that means, you know, instead of being a color on a paint, you're, you're literally a shape that has to fit into a hole and that feels a lot different, you know? And that feels like, well, now I don't feel like <laughs> there's any sort of living believably in these circumstances and it becomes more about like moving chess pieces on a board. Right. Are there some, uh, are there some directors that made you a better actor? Wow, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, Sam Mendes in every way, I mean, he's just one of the greatest brains, directors, talents, visionary people I've ever met. He's so incredibly confident. And uh, the thing that's so great about him is he's so confident being right and he's so confident being wrong. And away we go, uh, it was like a week into shooting. We had shot in the, if you know the movie, we shot in the house, like right at the very beginning when we decide to go on the road. And um, that house, when we shot there, after a week, Sam just took me in his trailer and he's like, I'm really sorry to do this to you. I got to shoot the whole week over again. And most people don't know that story. And he was just like, I just, I know it sounds really weird, but what I thought was going to be right for the movie, it's, it's, not the, it's not how it's feeling. And I know exactly where to go. And I hate to tell you, we're going to have to go back and do it. And to me, it's like, you know, I'm sure as a studio head, you're like, oh my God. For an actor, it is just like, you just gave me every molecule of confidence in you that I will do whatever you want. You know what I mean? That you are so dedicated to being wrong and not fudging it and being really honest with me. It was just awesome. It was awesome. So it didn't shatter your confidence that like, maybe he just wants to do this whole thing over again? Well, that's what I said. And he just said directly to me, he said, absolutely not. And then when you step on set and you realize that the cameras are in a totally different spot, what it basically was is he was doing tableau kind of stuff and then realized that because the entire movie was about the relationship, that he wanted these cameras. So he got two cameras rolling in every scene, which we did not have. And once you had that, there was this behavioral thing where you were, again, it sounds super artsy and filmy, but it's like you were inside the relationship. You were not observing the relationship anymore. You were with us. And that, that little shift, again, I wouldn't know how to do it, but he did, and, he, and it changed everything for us. Amazing, amazing. I mean, that, that brings up like, um, you know, and I think this is, a, this is a big thing that separates good directors from bad, is with all of the, you know, all of the production and all of the questions that are just essential to getting a scene actually made, how does a director kind of shut it all out and see things like that and, and also keep an emotional you know, mood mm -hmm. intact while there's a million things going on? Right. Well, I mean, for me, again, very, very, very low-level <clears throat> directing experience, but for me, at some point, it's just like acting, which is like you can do all the preparation you want. You can read up on a character if it's a historical character. You can do whatever you want. You can go be a cobbler in Italy or whatever Daniel Day-Lewis did. But like at the end of the day, <laughs> when they call rolling, you just got to jump. And again, it's like I said, the great people will allow you to have a little stumble room. They don't really want you to walk a perfect line that you've planned to walk. They want you to stumble around and move a little bit. And so for me, it's... 
it's got to be the same way as a director. Like on The Office, I mean, we're, to be honest, an ensemble of people that are so good at what they do that I can set up the camera angles, I can have a little twist on something, I can say that we're gonna reveal this thing that we've never revealed and all those fun things. But once the camera rolls, you're in a live moment and you just watch it, you know what I mean? Is my shot really you know, helping these people or does it look a little weird? You know, and did the blocking block someone else or is this, you know, is this person <laughs> look totally bizarre like leaning on a file cabinet for no reason, you know? So those are the things that you just let it all go and then realize that what you've got on these two monitors are what you've got. So then you have to just start changing again and live through the moment rather than like, I know this is going to work out perfectly. Right. Um, Try, don't bend them to your will yeah, as exactly. much as exactly. bend yourself to the situation. A little. And I guess, I guess it's got to be, you know, especially for Sam Mendes, it's got to be, you know, the world of theater. You know what I mean? Realizing that you're setting up more of a proscenium than a frame and just to let these people have a little moving room, you know what I mean? Which is, that's what I think has given me any confidence whatsoever to create at all, is the show. You know, our whole show, it, to its core, like its DNA is let life happen, really, because our entire set is lit already, pre-lit. So if all of a sudden I decide to walk to the refrigerator, it might not be the best lighting, but they're gonna get it. So all this stuff is just like, Anything you want to do, you can do. There's no marks because marks would be seen in the documentary. So it's just this really crazy freeing thing. Even from the beginning days of it, it was writers running in and say, like, I saw you do that take. I just realized, you know, it would be way funnier is if you say this. And you were just like, yeah, like that energy is amazing. So to me, I approach every single thing like that. And it's really funny to see the pushback that comes from the movie industry, which is like, what do you mean you might change the script? What do you mean you just want to set up a wide shot and see what they do? What does that mean? And I'm like, trust me, it's going to get you good stuff. You know, so it's really, really fun and interesting, and I'm so lucky to have that background. Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably the perfect combination of theater and filmmaking. And, and you're a troupe, you're an ensemble, and you've been doing that show for nine seasons. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is as good a time of, as any to talk about that. Uh, but tell me just just briefly uh, how that room was when you when you walked in for the audition and and did you feel as if uh, it was uh, a, you know go in and take it away or did you walk in and walk out and go I have no idea whether I got that part at all I never know anything about anything so I don't know if a movie's going to be good or not I have that weird like hopefully healthy like it's going to turn out negative until it turns out positive. And I don't mean like I'm a dark cloud, but I just, you know, if you see a movie that I'm in and you're like, dude, it was really good. My first question will be like looking at you a little funny and go, really? <laughs> like, I just don't, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's being from Boston or whatever, but like, it's just so hard to be like, nailed it. So going into that um, audition, have I never told you the story? That's no. crazy. No. So, I did my first read or whatever, and then I got called back in New York. Weirdly, they wanted to bring me in for Dwight. So they wanted to bring me in as Dwight. And at the time, my manager, who I told you, had just started representing me, and he said, like, okay, you're gonna go in for Dwight. And I was like, well, I've read the sides. I feel like this guy, Jim, is probably the way to go. He's like, okay, cool, hold on one sec. So he called the casting director and was like, I think you should come in for Jim. And the guy's like, hey, guess what? This dude's done nothing. He's lucky to be coming in. He's coming in as Dwight. And he called me back, and this was just one of those moments where if I look back on it, what the hell was I doing? But I said to him, I was like, listen, I want to put my best foot forward. If they um, don't find Jim, 
bring me in for Jim because I'm not going in for Dwight. It's just, it, it'll just be weird. Like, how would you clear the palette and be like, well, I saw him as Dwight, now I'm going to see him. I said, it's just going to be weird. If I'm going to take a shot, I want to take the best shot. And what my manager never told me was um, he called the casting director and the casting director basically told him to shove it up his ass again. And my manager goes, great, well, then John's not coming in. Which I never knew, because I was like, I never went to that DEFCON level, but he, <laughs> he just... We're at DEFCON Yeah, five. he just sort of napalmed it, and sure enough, they didn't find the gym. And so they were like, all right, now come in for gym. I didn't know any of this, so I was like, oh, that's awesome that my idea worked. Turns out, no, I, that my manager had rolled the dice and won, which was great. So anyway, long story long, I, I went in, and now I'm being called back um, for gym, and I walked in, and there's like six... Jim's sitting on this bench and it is like a very surreal thing where you're like you guys all kind of look like me And this is weird like this is very weird. Was there anyone in there that we would know now? Um, or I were think they so. all gyms that faded off into the ether. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know But like they went in one by one and I'll never forget there was like six of them and I was the seventh one and the Six people went in and then the casting director came out and said um, We're gonna take a lunch break and again, knowing that I had no power or anything, I was like, really? You can't, not one more? Like, this is, like, now that's just weird. It's going to break everything. And so, sure enough, just like 40 people leave the casting office and go get sandwiches and salads. I'm sitting on this bench. And they come back, and this guy sits in front of me with his salad, and people are coming in and out. And he goes, are you nervous? And I was like, you know, not really. I mean, you either get these things or you don't. But what I'm really nervous about is this show. I mean, I just... I love the British show so much, and just Americans have a tendency to just really screw these opportunities up, and like, I, I just, I don't know how I'll live with myself if they screw this show up and ruin it for me. And he's like, my name's Greg Daniels, I'm the executive producer. And I was like, Bleh. like I actually threw up in my mouth and was like, I gotta go outside. I went outside and called my manager and was like, maybe I just don't even go in. Like maybe, like what am I gonna do? He was like, well, now you got to go in. But you could tell his vibe was like, what are you thinking? And I went into the room, and everyone was laughing at me because I was such a moron. And everybody was like, is this the uh, jackass that told you that the show's going to be ruined? Go for it, kid. And weirdly, because they were already laughing, the room was really warm and really ready to go. And I, and I just did it. And then, then they called me out to L.A. and tested there. And the only fun story about L.A. was terrified and they flew you out which was all really exciting but I was terrified and like a little bit like ready to black out because it was all just so much anxiety and fear and then um, they had the New York kids go first and then the LA kids and after the LA kids were almost done I was the only New York kid that they hadn't let go and so I walked they had the whole set all ready to go for the test I mean so it was the live set and I just walked on the set and I was like, I'm really sorry. I think you guys told me, forgot to tell me to go home. I'm going to go home. And they were like, oh, no, 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 And they brought in Jenna and they said, we just want you to read with this girl. And the moment I sat down with her, I was like, oh, this girl's going to get it. And so we were walking out and I was like, you're going to get this part. I know it. And she goes, that's so weird. I think you're going to get the part, blah, 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 blah. And it just felt that weird metaphysical thing where you're just like, this is really cool. And the first question I asked when I got the part was, did Jenna get the part? And she said, that's the first question I asked too. So it was like this weird thing going already, this chemistry that had already started, which was pretty, pretty awesome. It was really, really cool. You know, just hearing that story, it makes you wonder about the first, you know, the thing that changes your life that so many of actors, so many actors have gone through that. And uh, everyone probably has that feeling of, 
oh my God, you know, like, you just start doing the numbers. How many people did they originally see? Oh my and God. It's like, it's like a lottery. Yeah, yeah, ways. yeah. <clears throat> it's exactly know. a lottery. I mean, I have won the lottery. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so you can hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Now, I have a question for you. When you get a nasty cough or a sinus infection or have pain in your hip or you have blood shooting out of your foot, you go to a doctor, right? But when you're struggling with something, be it stress or anxiety or financial worries or relationship difficulties, a lot of people try to solve those things themselves. And whether it's a stigma attached or whether it seems like a luxury, people often don't take care of their mental health the way they take care of their physical health. And I can tell you from experience and from being an entrepreneur and an artist and running my own career and raising a family and going through all of the ups and downs of those experiences, I have certainly spent time in therapy. I'm in there now. And I can say with certainty that I would not be where I am today without paying attention to my mental health. And also, a lot of people don't know how to find help, how to find the right help, or how to ask for help. Well, there's BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed counselors who specialize in issues including depression and anxiety, as well as complicated relationships, family relationships, sleeping, grief, stress, trauma, anger. And you can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can securely exchange unlimited messages. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and you'll get matched with a counselor, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. If for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can easily request a new therapist at any time for no additional charge. It's kind of like BetterHelp has figured out how to streamline this process and find you the right help in a way that works for you. It makes sense financially, and it makes sense in your busy day-to-day life. Obviously, a lot of us don't have time to drive to a therapist's office and sit there in the middle of the day when we're supposed to be working. So BetterHelp has sort of figured all that out. You can get professional help when you want it and whenever it's most convenient. So if you're struggling or you want to grow or you want to get something more out of your life and you're just not sure how, try BetterHelp. And off-camera listeners will get 10% off their first month with the discount code CAMERA. So go to betterhelp.com camera and see what they're all about. That's betterhelp.com slash camera. Now back to the show. You know, and this doesn't have to be a long answer, but I just wonder, you've played... Knowing me, it will be. (laughs) You've played Jim for so long. Um, How much are you acting? How much is it uh, you just getting to kind of react to? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking, are the reactions natural do the lines feel like you or does it really feel like you have to go to a place to be Jim look Jim is not you know me playing Quasimodo or something like it's not the greatest transformation ever known to an actor that's that's uh, that's obvious in a fact but I think that the the character is definitely different enough from me um or just a different time in my life you know I mean I definitely can understand and 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 um sort of see exactly what his position is in life, especially with all the stuff we went through in the first few seasons. I mean, we were supposed to be canceled every single week, and that's not a joke. Every single week, someone from NBC came down, who's the greatest guy, this guy Jeff, I love him. And he would be like, God, the show's so good. This is great. The Daily's looking great. Sadly, you know, this is the last one we're doing. 
And I was really? like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. And he was just like, which is a bummer. I love the show, but it's just not, they don't know what to do with it and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, cool. Can I get a DVD just so I can show my mom that it happened? And he was like, yeah. And he actually gave me that DVD of six, six episodes, which was just killer. You're kidding. Killer. I still have it, which is awesome. But so I think that that vibe of it really made me understand, like, the guy who was nervous about life and sort of unsure of what to do next with his life and blah, blah, blah. Um, so for me now, I think... Again, a terribly cheesy, pretentious analogy, but it is like music. I think when you play in a band for long enough that there's got to be a sense, I don't know because I'm not a musician, but I would say that as a drummer, <clears throat> the stuff just flows a little better. You're not thinking about when to hit the drum when. It's just this flow. But at the same time, you will never not connect to the experience of playing live, and that's how I feel on set. Like I still connect every single day. Those those exchanges and the lines back and forth are as real and in the moment as when we started because I just love these people. I mean, they're my family. So we really are locked in and dialed in and I have more fun. I mean, it's so funny because everybody comes up to you and they're like, geez, nine years. I mean, that's, that's got to be getting old now. And it's like, never, never. This show is never something I would ever run away from. It's something to embrace and hold on to for as long as we could. Wow. Art imitating life a little bit. You know, Jim seems to be always just a few steps ahead of you in terms of the next step of, of life, uh, you know, uh, through marriage and through fatherhood. Like, mm -hmm. you got married on TV first. And yeah, you got yeah, married. Yeah. You had kids on TV. Now, yeah. you know, I don't, you don't have kids yet, but I'm sure that time's coming four. up. I have four. Um, is it odd to go through life, like, uh, you know, with these changes that happen first as a character and then to you in real life? It is so bizarre. You know, I never really thought about it while we were shooting sort of the lead up and, and, and uh, you know, the unrequited love stuff. I definitely could connect to that because there were, I, <clears throat> I wasn't the most successful in love as far as like, uh, you know, high school and college and stuff. I was always the kid who just like adored a girl and they'd be like, you are such a good friend. Sign my yearbook. And I was like, you got it. <laughs> And it was like hearts and like hopefully we'll be love yeah your exactly friend. exactly we'll be friends forever. Um, you give the best hugs. Shut up. <laughs> um, so to me, the unrequited love thing was really uh, easily understandable. <clears throat> but then you know, after meeting Emily and having all that be so exciting and so different, a whole new world for me. Then the show locked into this very weird sort of parallel universe thing. And I'll never forget giving the um, rehearsal dinner speech in the show where I say how much I love this girl. Like, I definitely got choked up because it was just all sort of like smashing into each other at the same time. Because at the time, I knew I was going to propose to Emily, but the world didn't. So I was like doing this rehearsal speech and being like, eh, and my brain was like, can I just get a five second timeout? And so that was really exciting. And then to get married, we had already been engaged. And so when we got married on the show, it was really like, I think like six or five months ahead of me actually getting married, which was totally weird and bizarre because I think, you know, looking out at your family of these people who, you know, you just immediately think, not negatively, but you immediately think like, this is an era of my life and it will, you know, go. so you have the same emotional connection looking out or a similar emotional connection as you do looking out to your family and friends when you get married of like, oh my God, these people mean the world. And it's just this existential sort of crack that happened. Except you get to do it over and over yes. until you get it right. Yes. And, and, you, and you were at my wedding. You saw how much of an existential crack it was. I did not hold it together. 
Did you feel like you need, wanted writers for the actual rehearsal speech? The, oh my the God. Rehearsal dinners? I mean, that's another funny thing is they, maybe they took some of the best lines that you then couldn't oh, use. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I wish I could have looked to camera on my wedding day. But um, no, I mean, it was one of those things where it just you, you have gone through this extremely romantic experience and you're just dying to hope that your real life experience will be half as good, just half as good. I think that's the great you know, lie of television is that people watch it and go, oh, that's how my life should be. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you were also cast as a young new father-to-be uh, and away we go. Right. Uh, why do you get cast for these roles? I don't know. I guess the, the industry is just telling me I need to have babies. <laughs> it's really intense. What is, you know, at the end of the day, when you have a moment to just, maybe before you go to sleep or whatever, what is your feeling about the show ending? Um, at this point right now, uh, the decision to end the show is such a huge one. Um, in such a positive way for me, you know, uh, we all had a real big say in whether or not we ended it. And it was a big discussion and the producers and the studio people and the actors and the crew and we all had like a feeling about it. And to us, it was just about maintaining the very unique and special experience that we've had all along, which is, I think we're a really special show. I think we're a very unique show. And because of it, we deserve to leave rather than be asked to leave. And growing up, I just think I remember vividly the end of Cheers and, you know, the end of Friends and all these things. And <clears throat> I just think it's such a special moment. And weirdly, TV is an incredibly sentimental medium that you have a lot of people not only watching, but like weirdly experiencing this with you. So everyone deserves to have that goodbye moment rather than like, is that show still on? You know what I mean? We just didn't want that. So for me right now... To get to your question, I'm, I'm so excited because we're working so hard to have a really fun last season. And they've made me a producer this year, which is really, really fun. But I sadly have been known to compartmentalize and push things to the end in a very negative way. So I have a feeling that leading up to, for instance, when Steve's last week came around, came around I would walk on set and people were already crying and all week, just tears everywhere. And I remember turning to people, like cast members and crew members, I was like, guys, pull it together. I mean, this is his goodbye. You are freaking him out. <laughs> and I was like, it's going to be fine. Like, his contract was up. It's fine. Like, it's no big deal. And then the last scene of his career on the show was me saying goodbye to his character. And I got into this thing totally still confident that everything was fine and we'd have a good goodbye and be friends later walked into this room, they called action, and just annihilated. I was annihilated with emotion, just immediately. I think the first take, you, we, we have it on sound, they should put it on the DVD, which is just, they call action, and just, I just go, <laughs> and then Steve's like, <laughs> and we didn't get one line out. It was just way too emotional, way too quick, and it was because I think that we're both from Boston, which is a little bit more of a town, which is like, all right, leave emotions at the door. It's all right. We don't need to talk about it. And so he was very tough and, and steadfast. And then just saying goodbye to him, we just burst into tears. It was really intense. So I can only imagine that I will have a nosebleed and black out like on the last <laughs> take of the show. And people will be like, we didn't even get to say goodbye to John because he was on his way to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, that is a funny thing with that. You know, the, the walls are, are up, but they're thinner than you think. And, and when you're that way, mm -hmm. it can 
it can. I'm, I think I'm similar. It can take you by surprise yeah. when the emotion hits you. And so the office is ending nine seasons, and you're one of these very lucky, very you know, uh, hardworking actors that um, have been able to move pretty fluidly between television and film. You want to make movies, you're making movies. You, ma you just made Promised Land mm -hmm. with Matt Damon, mm -hmm. which Gus Van Zandt directed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what kind of movies do you want to make now? Are you, are you a topical person? Do you get obsessed about a subject? Is there a, is there a path you're on? Um, <clears throat> I don't think so. I mean, my whole thing has been storytelling. I just love, you know, ever since I was a kid, I just loved good stories. And to me, you know, <clears throat> there's, a, there's sort of like a tenor of real life that I appreciate more in movies for me. So like, it's a little more real and probably a little more, not gritty, but there's some sort of concrete base to a movie like Michael Clayton or, you know, The Verdict or, you know, you know uh, stuff where people have conflict, you know what I mean? Real conflict. That's probably what I really, really like, but that's not to say that I'm going to be like comedy or drama or one way or the other. I mean, let's be really honest. I'm lucky to be in the game at all. So really, I'm excited <clears throat> and more terrified to see what happens next. I mean, this is a weird, you know, I can say this to you as a friend and because it's not being recorded or anything, is, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely feel, without over-dramatizing it, that I'm at a precipice, like a real precipice now, and that the next step of my life will be a jump that I haven't had to do in my life. I mean, so far in my career, rather that I will be jumping into the unknown and hoping that something catches me that I really love and can get behind, which has never happened before. You know what I mean? Even when I've done movies, they've been in between shooting the show, so you don't have to jump that far because the show is always coming back. And um, not only career choices and work, but also who I think I am and what kind of stuff I want to do, exactly like you asked, is all out in the ether and all out in the dark. And I'm just, you know, I just... I think the only thing I'd say about me, which is bizarre because it's always weird to talk about yourself, but like the only thing I'd say is that like I love going 150 miles an hour in one direction. If I find out it's the wrong way, I'll turn around and do it a different way. But I love going all the way on something that I really believe in and really can get behind. So the only thing I'd say is what I'm choosing to do next hopefully will be stuff that I'm fully committed to, that I'm not like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do this or... God, you know, this would probably be good for me to do this. You know what I mean? It's nothing like that. I just, I, I think I'm going to try at least for a week until I get too scared is to just track down things that will really mean something to me and weirdly mean something that I can turn to my kids and point to a poster and say, like, I loved doing that. You know, I loved being a part of that. And, uh, and that's it. You know, I just feel so lucky to be doing it. And it sounds, you know, I'm sure people hear that all the time. They're like, yeah, right. But it's true. I mean... It's just ridiculous when you look at the world that I live in and the things that I've been afforded to do and, it's, and to work with these people. It's just like, it's totally ridiculous. So to me, I've been so lucky to just work with good people and, and, and such creative people that I'm just going to keep holding my breath that that continues to happen. Well, you know, that, that brings up that old adage about being an artist in a room with other artists or being in, you know comedian or an actor or whatever um you know at a young age you've been in the room with some really accomplished people I mean Meryl Streep and George Clooney and Sam Mendes and Gus Van Zandt and Matt Damon and um I mean is there ever a moment when you when you have that complete intimidation intimidation thing take over and you're like 
God, do I, do I belong in this room? Oh my God, every single day. I mean, the fact that you're even interviewing me right now, I'm like, you've got to have better people to interview. And you're like, I do. I have six more people I do. lined up. I do. I'm but, looking at the board right uh, yeah. now. I'm like, well, that's an impressive group. <laughs> Damn it. Um, but I'm happy to be your trial period. Um, the, uh, it's the early days. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. No, Black it's, and white period. It's, uh, it's extremely intimidating, and I think, weirdly, that's what makes it the most fun. I hope, and I don't think I'll have any trouble doing this, but I hope I'm always one of the smaller potatoes in the room because it's so much fun to watch these people do what they do and to be around it. And <clears throat> It sounds stupid, but like, I'm not a good basketball player. The only reason why I'm a decent basketball player or fractionally decent basketball player is because my brothers were 6'8 and 6'9 and really, really good. So I believe wholeheartedly, because I've lived through it my whole life, if you perform or are around people who are good and better than you, you will get better and you will learn so much. And so that's how I feel about this whole industry, you know, especially working with these people. Speaking of, you know, <clears throat> surrounding yourself with, with heavy, heavyweights, um, you've just completed a film that you wrote with Matt Damon, mm -hmm. you guys co-produced, and you both acted in. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it interesting. You are a uh, you're a trained writer. I mean, you went to school to write theatrically, and you know, I know you make the face, but I mean that that was your yeah. You know, there's, there's I think I, th I think I thought I was being trained in writing, but there were kids way. I mean, I just didn't know what I was doing. Well, but uh, but you know. Uh, but then the first time you decide to sit down with a collaborator and write a script, it happens to be with the guy who has already won the Oscar for yeah. best original screenplay. Exactly. Right? So, I just wanted to take him down a peg. That's, that's what right. I wanted. Bring him down. <laughs> uh, so tell me, um, you know, what was that like? How, how did you guys collaborate? Because I've always been interested in business partnerships and creative partnerships where you actually have a someone to bounce ideas off. And I just hmm. wondered how that worked between you guys, and especially knowing that you both were going to play these characters. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I met Matt through uh, my wife who did Adjustment Bureau with him. Um, <clears throat> and so when we were, as they were finishing up the shoot or, or something, Emily, who's an incredible supporter of me, was like, you should talk to John about writing stuff. He has all these great ideas. And Matt was like, oh, really? Because I'm looking to direct. And I was like, oh, cool. And he said, do you have anything that you really like? And I said, yeah, there's this one idea that I'm kicking around right now. And, you know, I've been kicking around the story with Dave Eggers. I brought it to him. I thought it would be cool. And I brought him in to, like, talk about, you know, how it would work and which characters. Because I know a lot of this stuff was near and dear to his heart. And my idea was I just wanted to write a movie about American identity. That these, <clears throat> the, especially after the whole political thing we just went through, it's, it's, we're not living in a world where these issues or the lives that we are living through are political anymore. It's completely universal. And so there's no more party lines. It can't be for love of party. It's got to be for love of country now. You know, so it's this, this idea of community and people and, and what everybody's going through. That's what I wanted to do. And I just thought that the green energy movement was something really interesting to play around with. And, and that there's so much hope and good and sweetness in the green energy movement, but it's also a business. So it's like, how do you manipulate that whole system? So that's what I talked to Dave about. I brought that idea to Matt. He loved it. He wanted to direct it. So we just started writing immediately. He was shooting uh, We Bought a Zoo out in Malibu, which you came to visit us a couple times. And I was, I was probably completely stressed out and 
not nearly the same person I was. You were like, hey, man. And I was like, ah, got to finish this thing. I don't know how the scene's going to work. That was fine. The, and, the, the punch in the face was a little yeah, exactly. unexpected. But, you know, <laughs> I understood you were a little, under a little pressure. Um, but it was uh, immediately uh, incredible. We had a very similar sensibility. We had a really similar perspective and an outlook on the world. And we knew what movies we loved. And so with those components, we just started going and writing and laughing. And it was just one of those things where, again, because I love to go 150 miles an hour down one route, he was a great person because I think I work a little bit too fast. And sometimes he's, he, he's good to slow me down because he'll say, I, hold on, let me just think about that for a day and get back to you. And I'm like, no, let's get through this today. We can, we can nail this scene down. And he would want to digest it a little more. And so we worked really, really well together. And like you said, having someone to bounce the ideas off was, was key. You know, that was the real key. Because um, you could just tell from a look in someone's eye. You'd be like, what if he said this? And that idea of like, yeah, that's exactly what he's going to say. Or like, ah, you know what I mean? It, it allows you to move uh, together at the same pace rather than being in a room in front of a white screen just being like, I think this joke would be really funny and just sort of go on a tangent that later is completely cut. <laughs> when you're in the room with them, you know, you know what your guidelines are and where you're headed. So when you guys are in the room and uh, you're working on a scene, tell me how it works. You get to a place where um, you, know, you just say, okay, let's run it, and, and you start kind of acting the scene? You don't really act the scene. It's, it's more like you know what the scene's about, right? So, for instance, we knew that there was a scene where he'd be talking to a, a member of the supervisor's board in the town. And um, <clears throat> the, the, the idea of the movie is that this, this guy from a uh, 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 natural gas company is trying to, get the, is trying to buy leases from the, the people uh, in the town, try to get the, the land rights to drill for natural gas. And because it's a you know, a, a very complicated issue that sometimes there are people who want it, sometimes there are people who don't, but it's such a complex issue that sometimes you have to grease the wheels, and so there was this scene about whether or not he's going to need to bribe this supervisor. And so when you're doing that, and you're doing that scene, um, once you understand where it's going to go, you kind of go back and forth, and like, oh, maybe at some point they could do this, and he'll arrive at this point, and then this change will happen. And so you start going from the outside in, and you're like, oh, then maybe this could happen. And then as you keep boiling it down, then you're like, and this is what he'll say to make that happen. And then you just start taking cracks at what they're saying. And yeah, that's the benefit of having an actor as a writing partner, because he will, you'll say, I think you should say this line, and he'll just do this and be like, no, it's not, I don't think it's that. And you can see that in his brain, he's already doing the work that he'd be doing when he arrived on set right there. So it's amazing, you know what I mean? Rather than getting to set and being like, yeah, so I was reading the sides last night. The only thing I don't like is this area here. We blew through all that as we were going, which was phenomenal. So when we actually got to shooting, I think we were both so nervous because we had spent so much time. And there was a little bit of that moment, I think, where we were like, how are you going to do it? Yeah, yeah, but how are you going to do your part? You know, there was that weird thing. We had never discussed how we were going to act these roles out. And so it was really kind of exciting and terrifying and a little weird for a split second. I bet. And I bet there's also, you know, some propriety over the lines you wrote. And yeah, I, I, that was kind of my scene. How are you, I think you should play that a little more. Yeah. I mean, was there a lot of kind of crossing of lines between, you know, some co-directing or some, some uh, you know, some gentle 
pushes in a certain direction? Yes, uh, and in the best way, in a way that you were so ready for it and so inviting it because, you know, um, Matt had said that this is how Ben and he wrote Good Will Hunting is just honesty, 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 honesty. Never leave your man out to dry, you know what I mean? So any note that he gave me was never like, this is going horribly wrong, change it. It was more like, remember that thing that we came up with? I don't know if we're getting that across as much as we need to, you know what I mean? Like, I think what we're forgetting is that three scenes ago, and I was like, oh my God, you're totally right, I forgot about that, you know? Or, you know, after takes, he was so generous in saying, like, do you have anything for me? Because I was very rarely on set with him uh, as an actor, but I was there every day as a producer. And it was just that thing of really more just like, is there anything I forgot? Like, reminding me of back, you know, writing the script together. Is there anything that I'm, you know, can we say anything? So sometimes it would be like, maybe this line would be really cool. We never thought of it, but like, let's throw it in now. And it was really fun in that way. So no, it never towed the line of like, I'm gonna tell you how to act now because I'm Matt Damon. And by the way, I would have been fine with that. <laughs> but um, it was always honesty. So from the writing period to the acting period, it was just like, you know, is this scene good? And then you'd get to the point at the end where it's like, no, this scene's not good enough. We gotta rewrite it or scrap it or whatever. And that was, for me, it's just the best way I work, you know? Um, I just deal really well with honesty because my brain can't handle trying to figure out what you're thinking about what's going I could just I'd just much rather you say like it's not it's not how we're doing it it's not working and, and I'm I really love that because I can shift gears and go somewhere else right no I think I think that uh, I mean it makes me wonder uh, does it make you look forward to writing the next thing with a partner and always having a writing partner or does it make you say wow I learned all of this but I want to do one completely on my own well, I mean, I think it, for me, again, being on The Office, I think I realized early on that the final product's going to be a collaboration at some point. So I would rather that collaboration start happening early. And the benefit of doing it is, you know, whether it's with a director or an actor that's going to be in the movie with you, you guys start building this club of full awareness and understanding of what this thing is so that you don't ever run into that thing of in casting trying to convince someone what this movie is. Like, this is so special to us, here's what it is. You just keep bringing people in as you go along so that by the time you're shooting, you are, just like The Office, a band of misfits, like this, this ensemble of, of actors who are, and, and directors and writers, and everybody's in on the same thing. It was a really special experience and one that I hope I can achieve from now on, you know what I mean? It's, it's that weird thing where you've seen behind the curtain and you're like, this could work every time. Granted, it will be really, really hard, hard to do, but I think that's what I wanna do. I think I wanna have an idea, take a crack at a script, maybe, maybe even hash out a full script in skeleton form, and then try to find my director or an actor, or you know what I mean? And then just say like, now let's do this before studios or anybody knows about it. Like, what would you do here so that by the time it's, out, you've, you've cooked it pretty fully, you know, and you don't have that experience where this high power actor's like, yeah, the only problem with this is half the script. And you're like, oh God, I wish you were on board in the beginning because you'd know we were, where we were going. Right, like, like you've answered all the tough questions already exactly, on your own yeah, before, yeah. no one can ask you a question you don't know about the character or, mm. because you've already gotten there. Now that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if, uh, if, if uh, ben wasn't doing so well in his career right now if you would have felt a little strange, you know, writing a movie with Matt. I think I still felt strange. <laughs> I know I'll never be Ben. I'll never be as handsome as he is, as talented as he is. But um, 
it, no, it, it was one of those weird things where I remember the night that Ben saw it and emailed us both to say how much he liked it. And it was like, it was like, <laughs> it's almost like Matt's ex-wife was writing to me being like, you guys will be happy together for the rest of your life. And I was like, thank you. It's so nice of you to say. Um, I'm sure he'll appreciate being called Matt's ex-wife. Yeah, exactly. Right. But just bring him down a little bit. <laughs> right, right before. Uh, yeah. I don't know what that makes me, but. Um, but uh, Matt's girlfriend. Yeah. Right now. Matt's mistress. Matt's lady of the night. Um, this interview has taken a It's dark taken turn. a really dark, yeah. weird turn. Yeah. Maybe we should. Uh, you know, in, in Is a. Is this where we start talking about the sexual favors that's of, right. that I had to do that's to right. get this movie made? Well, it's strange that you guys wrote the entire film in women's clothing, but <laughs> that's. That's something we can talk about. I was about naked later. half the time. You know, this film is, uh, in a lot of ways, from what I know of it, um, doesn't take a stance, you know, one side or the other of an issue, but it tries to be a film that, uh, from what I understand, wants the audience to make up their own mind uh, when they leave the theater. 100%, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting choice, and, you know, I wonder if that was from the beginning an intent for you and Matt to create a film like that that wasn't so issue-oriented, but was more human that way. 100%. I mean, that's, and I'm so glad you said it that way. I mean, to be honest, we sat down wanting to write a human story. We wanted to write a story about these people who are going, you know, under a huge stress and, and economic strain and have to make a big decision. So to us, you know, we had a different backdrop of, wind power for a while we were like you know what's because we had the characters in the story and we just needed that backdrop and so one of the backdrops was wind power because it was starting to become an issue and people were like you know it's too noisy and there's big things to look at which is all valid but not necessarily the most dramatic of of backdrops um to have people saying that they're noisy and i can't see my garden if there's a giant windmill so to us we were just searching for a, a legitimate background a backdrop and i just then started reading you know, this amazing New York Times series called, uh, I think it was Drilling Down or something. And they were just covering all facets of natural gas. And then you know, I had seen a 60 Minutes interview called Shalionaires. And you could see that this was such a great topic for our movie just because it added high stakes poker-esque you know, uh, uh, stakes to the, to, the, to the story that we were trying to tell, which is, there's so much potential, potentially to gain and so much potentially to lose, whether you believe it or not. You know what I mean? It's like you don't have to believe that, that the Earth's going to blow up if you uh, frack. And you also don't have to believe that every single person can be a millionaire if you drill. Maybe neither of those extremes are 100% true all the time, but there are cases of both. So in that, it was just such a great backdrop for our story. So for us... We started out the, the second phase. We had already written the script with the windmill background, and then we totally changed it from page one, the backdrop, to fit to natural gas, which was really exciting to us because we were like, look, the story still works with a totally different backdrop. So I remember Matt saying, by the way, people are going to hear about this movie, and they're going to call it the anti-fracking movie. They just are. And it was one conversation we had, and it was over. We never thought about it again. And it was like, the people who are gonna come after this movie, they wanna find a reason to come after the movie. It's not what the movie's about, so let's just write what the movie's about, which is these people going through something. 
you know, when I first had the idea, you know, the derivatives market had just been exposed for what it really was. You know, they had all these movies like the HBO movie Too Big to Fail and, and Matt had just narrated the inside job. So to me, the heart and soul of our movie was exactly what these people were going through in the, the housing market. And it was just, you know, who's getting duped, who manipulated the system, who took a chance and lost everything, and who took a chance and won everything. And those are just fundamental American, uh, uh, you know, scenarios. not even issues. Yeah, they're just scenarios. So for us, it was just really, really exciting that we had a new backdrop for this thing. And so to me, what's so interesting about your question is that, like, we always felt really good about where we were going because our whole thing was character, 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 people, people, people. And, you know, to be fair to Matt, he had already done it. Like, Goodwill Hunting is not about a genius kid. It's just not. It's about a group of friends, and it's about who you believe in and who you grow up with, who you rely on, what situations are too big for you alone, and which ones do you need a partner in that. To me, that's what the, the movie's about. So uh, Matt knew that it's all about character, otherwise this movie doesn't work. And so we're so proud of it in that way. And so the political thing is kind of a little bit funny to me only because Matt called it like day one of changing it to a natural gas backdrop. He was like, the people who want to annihilate us for this are going to annihilate us for it until they see it. And then when they see it, I, hopefully they have legitimate in their own opinions. So at the end of the movie, what you're left with is you know, nothing about natural gas. It's about who you are as a person. What is your role in your community? And what are you doing to change the world, however small or big, you know, whatever sort of perspective you have? But in a small way or a big way, are you choosing the short game versus the long game? And you know, we were sort of talking about it a little earlier on in the, in the interview, and I think that that is such a fascinating question on every level. Do you know what I mean? And obviously on the political level with the presidential race we just went through, it's like everybody has a different way to win the short game. Like, I can do this, I can cut this, I can add this, I can add a whole lot of taxes, I can take away a whole lot of taxes. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. We're all still in the same race, which is like, long game. How are we turning this boat around? You know what I mean? Like, I really don't care about what card tricks you can do on the table. How are you going to win this whole thing for all of us? Because we're all in this together at this point. So that's what we were going for. Well, it's very Capra-esque. I mean, when you think about his whole filmmaking philosophy, it was, yeah. it was, you know, pull in the entire, he naturally pulled the entire time he was living in, and, and it was just naturally there. Hal Ashby was great at this, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the 70s were a time when we saw corporate America take over and take over our healthcare system and everything, and when, when you know, in, in Harold and Maude, when Harold's in there trying to get Maude's stomach pump before she dies, uh, you know, he's got to fill out all these forms. And right. I think that was a little social comment. That No one would say that film is about you know, the healthcare industry, right. but he managed to say, this is the time I'm living in. And exactly. This is, what, you know, this is what is affecting my generation. Exactly. And those things, you know, I, I worry that sometimes people do get so focused on labeling something. Exactly. That a film has to be labeled and marketed and, and um, you know, to the point of where people can say, oh, that's the movie about fracking or that's the movie about sure. whatever. Which um, I think is, you know, just to hop in, is a weird, I think the social media game is such an interesting, fascinating, powerful tool. But it's also a slight 
promotion in one way, it, it can easily promote an ignorant aspect on something. For instance, if you go back to the days of just newspapers, right? If the New York Times or the Washington Post said, this is the anti-fracking movie, people would be like, have you seen it? And they'd be like, no. And it's like, well, what, what are you talking about? You don't even know what it is. So people would be very scarce to say one thing or the other until they had the facts. <laughs> and now on the internet, you can be like, this movie's about fracking, it's awful, we're all gonna die after we see this. And you're like, wow, that seems aggressive. You haven't seen it yet. And they're like, doesn't matter. I have no stake in this game. You know what I mean? I can say whatever I want. I can cash in as many chips as I want because they just keep coming, because it's all intangible. And to me, that's sort of bizarre. It, it, it sort of takes away a responsibility that you have as a moviegoer, as a thinker, as a, you know, as walking. someone who stands by the word, your yeah, word. Yeah, exactly. And to me, weirdly, that's kind of what our movie's all about. You know what I mean? Like, who are you and what do you stand for? Rather than, I think, you know, this, this world has gotten a little bit like you can hide in a closet and say whatever you want, whenever you want, and have no recourse for what you're doing. And um, sure, in a lot of ways, that sort of opens up a whole new existential door of a conversation. But at the same time, it's all existential and intangible. And you can't have that face-to-face -face discussion about something that actually exists. And now that you've seen it, what do you think? And now that I've seen it, what do you think? And that's all we wanted. The best compliment Matt and I could have after this, after people see this movie is that like, wow, that really made me think and sparked a conversation about a bigger picture. I don't think people are gonna leave and be like, wow, what do I think about natural gas? I think hopefully you drive home, you know, my friends who have seen it said they, they drove home and were like, shoot, I should probably go to that city council meeting about whether or not to turn my kids you know, jungle gym into a parking lot next month. You know what I mean? We should really step up to this. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. more of a universal issue rather than a in very specific terms issue. It's like voting for the president and not really knowing who you're going to vote for for your local assemblyman. Exactly. Exactly. And, right. and, and that I do feel, you know, my dad grew up in a small um, steel town just outside of Pittsburgh and it sounds so cliche, but it's true that like the way he talked about life was simpler and more pure, and in my opinion, more powerful. There was a fabric of community and faith in each other. And again, totally cliche, but there was this idea that tomorrow would be a better day, no matter what. And that is so powerful to get a group of people to believe in their president, their government, their city, their town, their teachers, that whatever it is, there's a positive nature and I feel that that has slowly died and there's this thing of like, well, I don't know how tomorrow's gonna go, so I'm just gonna go get mine. You know what I mean? I don't know where it's gonna come from, but let me go get it to support my family, my friends, or myself. And it's like totally legitimate in one way, but the, what we've sacrificed doesn't seem like that needs to go away. I feel like we can bring back a faith and community and in our country and in, 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 in each other, you know what I mean? But it all comes from What's your, what's, what's your part in this whole thing? You know what I mean? Who's gonna step up? You know what I mean? We should all be a part of something. We should all be moving towards the participation of it, not just sitting back and waiting for our lottery ticket. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me ask you a producer question, since right. you're also a producer on the film. Um, and this is, a, this is probably not that fair of a question, but what, what, <laughs> would, be, <laughs> what would be more, um, what would be better for you do you think uh, on this film, a critical success or commercial success, if you couldn't have both? Oh man, I mean, I'm just, I'm a weird film nerd, so obviously critical success would probably mean more to me, probably because I think the commercial success of anything now is this wild, un, 
tameable beast that you have no idea what's going to happen. You know what I mean? You can have all the components that you think make a great film and then people just hate it for some reason or don't like it or don't go or, you know, the, the commercial success is such a sort of masked being that I don't think you'll ever be able to court or get to know. And so critical success for me to have people understand, I guess probably it's also because it's my first script, my first original script. To, to have people understand where we were going and say like, I get it. And, and uh, you know, you towed, a, you towed a fine line and nice job. That would mean more to me than anything. But I'm also the guy who, no matter what I do, I kind of can't wait to hear what my parents think. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm just brass tacks. I love that the people who love me have an opinion about what I do. And so this is a weird thing because there will be a whole lot of people that I A, don't, love because they don't know me and I also don't know them and I also am terrified to hear what they think so it's this weird petrifying experience which you know Gus and Matt know very well and have dealt with and totally understand how they're going to go through this entire process this press push and all that and I'm just sort of like what is going on <laughs> you know well that was answered like a like a true creative because <laughs> you know I mean I think the dichotomy is if you're a producer if you know um you could have all the critical success in the world, but are you going to be able to make another film if your film doesn't make any money? But I would answer the question just like you. I would say it means so much more to me to have my peers. And maybe critical success isn't even the right sure. term, but I want my peers to... People you care about. And, and people that you respect. Exactly. You know, and, and that is important. And I think that truly, like... Um, I don't know, I have a weird theory that the film business is sort of an empirical society and it'll fall at some point if you keep relying on box office, whereas the one thing you can control, hopefully, is content, that if you keep putting out good movies, one of them will be Avatar, but one of them might be a smaller, cool indie movie like Away We Go, you know what I mean? You just keep putting out good movies, and whether it hits or not has nothing to do with you, you know what I mean? I don't think anybody knew that Juno was going to be as big a hit as it was, but I know that Jason put so much effort into making that such a beautiful, special movie that was the way he wanted to tell the story. And it turned into a huge success. So if you keep hunting quality things, other things can happen to it. If you hunt the dollars, there's no telling what's going to happen in the middle there. I mean, it's like the birth of the idea. And yes, I think I know how to make $100 million. It's anybody's game what happens in the middle. And to the point where, you know, studios now put out dates before they put out scripts. That's just a fact. I mean, it, it, not on all movies, obviously, but... I know a bunch of people who have been in movies where it's like, May 14th, 2014, let's go. And you're like, let's do it. What are we doing? What movie is this? And it's like, doesn't matter. I think there's going to be some zombies in it. I think you're going to be the guy who kills them. Let's roll. We got it. We got the book rights to this thing. Let's go. And you're like, okay, well, what are we doing? And so it's this mad scramble to create a great piece of film in a vacuum that is borderline impossible to do that in. You know what I mean? With a lot of people involved, they're already making posters for it, and you're like, what is going on? You know? I, I think you said it very well. If you, chase, you know, if you chase the story and you try to stay true to that, then you'll always, you know, you, yeah. you'll always be on the right path, whether or not it hits. And yeah, front load your opportunity rather than back load it and be terrified that the first part will just break off in half, <laughs> you know? Sure. I wondered, uh, because you've already done so many things, writing, producing, acting, directing, um, is there something that 
you wish you could do or you had time to do or uh, a profession that you look at and go, God, that would be so great? Or, or are you living that? Oh, no. I mean, I'm living, I'm living that for sure. I mean, this is just like a weird, especially this experience with Promised Land. It's the most surreal experience ever because I'm living... A, my dream, but also the like more cynical college version of me would be like, what? Jim from The Office's first script got directed by Gus Van Sant? Come on. Like, I know both sides of this. And so I am in total disbelief at the same time I'm celebrating how awesome this is. So I'm in a weird split here. Um, and that goes to my whole experience. But yeah, I mean, if there was anything else I would want to do, it, it is so trite. But the music, you know what I mean? Music to me is as you know, really, really important. I just love it. I probably don't know a fraction of what I should and should probably know much, much more, but I am so inspired and moved and uh, just blown away. I, I just look for experiences in my life where something can change you, even in a moment or forever, but just change you. And music's the only thing I think that can do that way more probably than movies, but, um, but that, that's something that I'd love to be a part of. What do you consider kind of your weaknesses or shortcomings? Mm, oh man, a lot. <clears throat> I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm aware of what people think more than I should be. Um, I'm a huge pleaser. I want everyone to be happy, which is an existential conundrum. It can never happen, you know. And I really try to hunt everybody being happy. I, I, uh, I'm terrible if like a friendship goes a little weird and. I have no idea what happened. It's just it, like, I'm not the guy who's like, ah, oh, it's weird. Hopefully in three weeks it'll be better. I'll just like hunt this thing down and try to figure out what I did wrong and blah, blah, blah. That's from a personal standpoint, but also in, in work, I just, I want to do the right thing. I want to make the right choices. I want to help everybody out and it, it can't be done always, you know? So I think I probably set myself up for disaster <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and then, I mean, from a really technical standpoint, I, I know I can be, um, uh, you know, a much like I, I know I can grow as an actor. I know I can grow as a creative, creative person. And the good news is I get such a kick out of it. You know what I mean? I'm not someone who's like, wow, I know I can be a better actor. How does that happen? I, if I can't figure it out, then I'm just going to stay in this one place. Like to me, this whole thing's a lottery ticket. So I just feel like I'm playing with house money. So learning this stuff and changing and growing and all that to me is what the experience is. That's where the fun is. That's where the, the, the real heart of this whole thing is, is that I've been given the opportunity to learn so much and change so much. So if the bridge goes out tomorrow, I'll be like, well, at least I ran as fast as I could down it and got as much of it under my belt as I could before it, before it went out, rather than be the guy that says, I, I waited for my opportunity and it never came. Right, right. Um, and and you know, I wonder, I wonder if you've ever kind of taken a role that later you look back and said, I listened to the wrong people or I took it for the wrong reason. Or do you kind of feel like every, every role you've ever taken has been a learning experience? Well, it has to be, you know, and absolutely. There's a truth to what you said that I took the wrong role and I listened to the wrong people. And fundamentally, people thought that this would get one thing would get you to the next place. But again, it just goes back to that thing of when you're young, you don't fully understand that idea of like chasing the box office of a movie and like this movie's going to be huge. That doesn't make any sense. Like now when I hear that and people are like, this movie's going to be huge. I'm like, really? Because I now have seen enough examples that the biggest movie with the most perfect cast and the perfect director and the perfect producers didn't even get seen. You know what I mean? So now that that conundrum has been broken for me, 
uh, or that fact and that thing that people live by. Now that that's broken, this is all a lot more fun. But at the same time, all those movies that I've done that, you know, are not necessarily a, a critical success or even like a, you know, fully good movie are all amazing experiences for me. You know what I mean? Who I worked with, where I was, the opportunity I got to have. I mean, I remember being on a movie set for the first time and, or be, or, you know, be given half the lines in a movie and, you know, you are the male character in this movie. That's terrifying to me and super exciting. And there's a responsibility there and a learning curve that you just run after and you hope that you get, you know, you hope you took enough of a running start to get there. Like, I, I, you know, um, I remember working with Robin Williams, and he's my hero. You know what I mean? Like, License to Wed, not the biggest commercial success or critical success or whatever. To me, that movie was awesome because I got to work with, you know, Robin Williams, who, to me, was as big as you get. And your brain bends around that experience a little bit. I mean, just to be honest, there's, like, an existential moment where you start to get really heady about, like, what is going on? I mean, I'm not... I'm not afraid to say that there are, there's a stability that I haven't achieved as far as like, oh yeah, this is all totally cool. You know what I mean? Like it's all very weird and you get a little anxious sometimes being like, whoa, I was five years ago waiting tables or three years ago waiting tables and now I'm in a scene with Robin Williams. This is crazy. And if I hadn't had that experience, I would have dropped dead on Leatherheads. Like as soon as I got to set and I was at a table with George Clooney and Renee Zellweger, I would have just dropped dead. If I had just come from the office to that, I would have been like, I'm out, guys. You know, I shouldn't be here. And just sort of like, you know, morphine it out and, and you're just out of the picture. I don't know how your brain accepts truths that are not acceptable unless you've had them doled out to you along the way. I wonder if that's a universal feeling whenever someone's in that position, um, any other actor or... Or if that's part of your upbringing and, and uh, you know what I mean? Because I, I, I wonder if there are people that just get in there and say, yep, I'm supposed to be here. Yeah, I'm sure there are. And I think that, and by the way, I'm sure there are people who do that and that set themselves up for what I believe would be a disaster and, and make it through. I'm sure there's fully confident people who are like, I deserve everything. The work, the fame, the money, I deserve it all. That, to me, is playing with so much fire, I would be engulfed in a minute. But if someone's got the strength of will or character or just slight insanity to make it through, great. I personally would never want to go that route because it, to me, sounds so terrifying. Now, one story with George, just because uh, you know, I, I know a little background on this, but I never got the full truth on it, was you, know, you walk into this thing, you're he's directing you you're a lead in the movie mm. like it's a big deal and I, I know you were very intimidated who challenged who to a one-on-one -on -one basketball game? <laughs> you know the truth of that which is sad i don't i don't know who challenged who i challenged him you challenged him yep. now was that did you feel like okay i got to do something to, yep i thought like, that would be was, endearing and were you no kind idea of, who did you he think was. before you said anything no just, i had i thought i had heard that he like played basketball with his buddies I had no idea that he was a fierce competitor, also very good at basketball, and a real dude's dude of like, well, don't challenge me unless you really want to do this. And you figured he was 20 years old. Oh like my God, I was, like, years old. I was like, oh, this will be so endearing to him that it's like, we, we'll, we'll have like a, like a Norman Rockwell moment of us on the court being like, and that was the day that the movie all made sense to both of us. Nope, that's not how it happened at all. It was like we were at a long table one of the first nights I was on set. 
and he had always been extremely nice to me and, and uh, ingratiating and, and uh, you know, allowed me into every experience. And we were drinking a little bit and, uh, and someone said something about basketball and George was very charming and, and, um, and sweet about it and self-deprecating. And I was like, I would crush you in one-on-one. And he just looked at me with the, just the greatest smile that was like part Cheshire cat and part the devil. And was just like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you want to play? And I was like, dude, I will give you six points in a game to 11. And that's when everybody at the table was like, oh, boy. Oh, God. <laughs> and Grant Heslov, his partner, was like, don't do that. Don't do that. And George was like, don't do that. I'm not going to take those points from you. I just want to play straight up. And I'll never forget Grant goes, I'll take those points. Go ahead. Like, and he just solidified his bet that night. Like, There was just no way I was going to beat George with a six-point lead. And so... Um, George and I played, and he beat me. That's the end of that story. That's the end. It was so... Well, no. I mean, there's so much more to that story, which is we had talked about playing each other for so long, and now I'm wondering if it was just such a brilliant mental trick that he played on me, which was he was like, you know, one of these days we're going to play. You know, let me know what your weekend status is. And I knew he was really busy. and, And then just every member of the cast, all the other guys on the team were like, you know George is like really good, right? And I was like, oh, he is? And they were like, really good. Like he's very athletic. He loves basketball. And then it started breaking down into like, you know he can dunk, right? And I was like, what? And then they were like, he has an incredible left hand. Like you can't guard him one way or the other. And then you I just started. You know he 60% from yeah, three-point land, I just, don't you? <laughs> I just started to just space out. I went to Walmart and got a ball and sneakers and the greatest moment was I was just so nervous and I was going to go to the gym early in the morning and practice by myself. Like I literally was going to practice before playing one-on-one with him. And the elevator doors open and there was George. Like I was pulling it. I got the garage ball sneakers, went up to the lobby and the lobby door opened and George just started laughing. There was no word spoken. Just laughing at the visual of me with a brand new ball and brand new sneakers that I was obviously going to practice to play him. And I think that was probably his best moment rather than the actual game. So it was, it was fantastic. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a testament that you stood up to, to him and <laughs> yeah. said this in front of everybody. It's I mean, a that, testament that took to some stupidity. Stones to, uh, yeah. um, let me ask you t- two last questions that we're done. Um, you're married to Emily Blunt, and she's a phenomenal actress and quite a high achiever in her own right. And uh, I just wonder how you two handle each other's success and schedules and how that works in a marriage. Um, you know, I, I would think it would be very easy to marry someone with no ambition at all, and you can be the man in the mm. house. And I just wonder, you know, is there a competition? Is it difficult? Does it bring you two closer together? How's that dynamic as two working actors? It's awesome. Um, I think what also helped is before I even met her, I was such a huge fan of hers. And I just thought she was so enormously talented. So for me, I just look at it as like someone who gets to be, you know, behind the scenes of all this incredible work that she does, incredible choices. And she is an inspiration in every single way to me. Uh, She's just so tough and so classy and so dedicated and so good at what she does. So I just watch in awe of everything. And, you know, for me, we don't really overlap with our 
you know, decisions or choices or, you know, there's definitely that conversation at one point down the line of, you know, do you think I should do this movie or something like that? But always after she's had a huge process for herself of reading the script, rereading the script, meeting the director, talking to her agents, and then all of a sudden we'll be like, you know, what do you think? Because I think I'm going to do it. Only when it becomes I think I'm going to do it does it become a discussion. And I just am lucky to be there. So I just support her in every single way. Of course. You know what I mean? Like I just I love that she loves what she does. Where it becomes an enormous help and a really, really special thing is you know, I think that if I was married to someone else in another business and or something, it would be really exciting because it would kind of be this cool thing of like, we're in two totally different worlds. That's exciting. To me personally, that would be devastating. So to me, to have someone who I can come home to at two in the morning because we shot all night and know exactly what that is and not even have to have a conversation or you audition for something and that week while you're waiting, you might be a little weird and a little off and they know exactly what you're going through, no questions asked. It's phenomenal. And then to get a role, either one of us, and the first thing we do is go out and have a drink and celebrate. It's just awesome. You know what I mean? It's like you speak the same language and, and it all makes sense. She helps it make sense, which is really really awesome. I mean, she's the most grounded, down-to-earth person, and yet she's doing the same things I'm doing at a much higher level. Is is just so fantastic, and I'm just so lucky to be with her for every reason, but that reason in particular is a good one. Could you ever see doing a film together? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would love to work with her. I'd be so intimidated to work with her. I think she's so good, so I definitely would have one of those moments where you probably would think, like, nah, you wouldn't have that, but, like, yeah, I would. I had it with Anybody who I think is really good, you know, it's really not about star status with me. It's about if I've seen you do something where you're just like, I don't even know what you did. Like, where did you go for that? You know, so the Meryl Streep's and the George Clooney's and the Sam Mendes, it's all because of what they've done, not because of, you know, this sort of aura that they've achieved, even though that's pretty incredible, too. So for me, you know, and I've also seen how she works and how she does things and she's serious like she is really good so I would be so nervous about like what did I do I don't even think I prepared this scene oh my god like I'm just gonna sort of live through it and see how we go and she's like well I've been doing six months of research on what I'm gonna make what decisions I'm gonna make in this scene I'd be like I should quit I can imagine that that scene at home you're like watching basketball and she's yeah. upstairs working on her part. yeah exactly she's like uh honey yeah is that what you're going to do to prepare? And it's like, prepare for what? Are we shooting tomorrow? This is nuts. Uh, no, I think it would be a really special thing. I think we'll do, I would love to work with her at some point. I kind of feel like a cool thing to do would be a play because there's some sort of neutral ground there where things can change every day and you can kind of live through this experience together every single day in a different way and kind of get to know each other's work habits and stuff over time rather than action and it's like what are you doing with this scene how are you playing this you know what i mean rather than you know that would be scarier than sort of learning and kind of going through something i also feel like there's a there's something about a play that's like we we did that together that was a moment that we did together so it was certainly know. a story to share you know with your kids when you get yeah. older and look yeah at, yeah i think that i i mean being able to work with your wife and and do that it's it, you'd have to your relationship would have to be in great shape to be able to, yes. to, yeah. be able to do that. And we're, yeah, and we're both very confident in that. So it would just be about you know, what it is. You know what I mean? I think that 
our dream would be that we can't imagine what it would be to work together. You know, we, we don't know what it would be to work together is the exciting part, rather than when people are like, I have an idea. You're a girl from England. He's a, just a guy from America, and you guys meet on a plane. Like, we would never do something like that because that's our life. Exactly. I'm just kidding. It'd be the, it'd be the documentary. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming and doing this. Of course, and, yeah. Um, and for being candid, and, and uh, I hope you'll come back again and chat with me more as your career goes on. I know yep. I'll be watching it. And, and, every uh, decade we'll do this. Every decade we'll sit down. <laughs> Maybe, you know, maybe the third one will be all about your music career. Yes. I doubt it. <laughs> or I just turned insane, and we will talk about my music career. That's right. And you'll just be, like, spouting unintelligible stuff <laughs> yes, and, like, exactly. soloing. How good is this? <laughs> there are no strings on the guitar, John. Yeah. It's so good, though. <laughs> Can't you hear it? Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. It is crazy to go down memory lane and hear not only what a different place John was at in his career, but also hear me trying to figure out how to do this job in the first place. So that was pretty interesting for me to hear. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, go see A Quiet Place 2. Go back and watch reruns of The Office. It's a lot of fun. And if you've been listening in for the last few weeks, you know that we're in the process of figuring out our next phase at Off Camera. So if you're wondering how you can help us with that, the best way to do it is to go to offcamera.com and support our show while we enter the next phase of our careers. We have the television subscription package available on offcamera.com. And what that is, is you can watch all 219 episodes we've ever made on any device as many times as you like for the low price of $4.99 a month. You can dive deep into the off-camera archives. You can see what you've been hearing on this podcast. And you can know you'll be helping support the show. It's a pretty great bargain. And when you buy the television subscription package, you're kind of being part of our family. And so I encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, to go check it out. All the episodes are available right now. So you can watch the John Krasinski episode we just listened to. You can see how young I look. You can see that we used Apple boxes for tables. And you can see our old studio. And then you can watch, you know, episode 218 with Liz Fair if you want. You can watch our 100th episode with Ron Howard, which was a lot of fun. You can watch two Robert Downey episodes, one from 2013 and one from 2019. So check it out. There's a treasure trove of wisdom and humor and vulnerability and pathos and experience collected in those episodes with some of the most iconic actors, artists, directors, musicians, and skateboarders of our time. So once again, offcamera.com, get the television subscription package, and dive deep into the archives and know you're helping the show. You can also talk about us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So don't keep off camera to yourself. Tell the world about it. And we'll be right here waiting for you. Thanks, and see you next time off camera.